0: This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School. This is Women at Work on Business Radio. Welcome to Women at Work and our weekly conversation about how we can help more women join, stay, succeed, and lead in the workplace. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, Executive Director of Wharton People Analytics. New episodes of Women at Work premiere on Thursdays at 9 a.m. Eastern, and our podcast can be found 24-7 wherever you get yours. Just search for Women at Work and me, Laura Zarrow, and be sure to follow the show on the channel's Twitter handle, at SXM Business. I have a question for you. How often has that little voice in your head told you to be ashamed of yourself whether it's about a mistake you made a goal you didn't reach or what you see in the mirror and how often have you digested content on tv or in your social media feed that focuses on someone else's shameful behavior maybe a despot who invades a democratic country or an actress who's gained weight obviously these examples are very very different from one another but that's the whole point. Shame is everywhere, and it's a double-edged sword that we all need to understand better, given its role in society at large and the way that it affects our own well-being, which is why I am so excited about today's guest. Kathy O'Neill is the author of the new book, The Shame Machine, Who Profits in the New Age of Humiliation? Kathy, welcome to Women at Work. I'm so glad to be here. Thanks, Laura. I'm thrilled to have you, and I just want to help our listeners know a little bit more about you, and then we're going to dive into the conversation. Great. So Kathy's the author of the award-winning bestseller, Weapons of Math Destruction, that I have to tell you made her a hero to all of the Wharton students I work with. She received her PhD in mathematics from Harvard and has worked in finance, tech, and academe. She launched the LEAD program for data journalism at Columbia University and recently founded O'Neill Risk Consulting and Algorithmic Auditing, also known as, am I saying this right, Kathy, ORCA? Yeah, ORCA. And she's a regular contributor to Bloomberg Opinion and, seriously, an important activist within the data science community. So, Kathy, I'm delighted that we get to really dive into this today. Yeah, me too. So so you obviously have been thinking deeply about shame. Mm -hmm. What started your wrestling with this in a way that was going to lead to a book, this kind of like deep structured analysis and translation for the rest of us?
1: Um, right. So my first sort of like, I guess I intellectual, um, part of my brain went off, um, about shame when I was interviewing teachers for weapons of math destruction. And I would ask them, you know, cause they were being evaluated and sometimes fired based on a score, a terrible scoring system actually called the value added model for teachers. That was really close to a random number generator believe it or not but I didn't know that at the time the teachers didn't know that at the time all we knew is that it was opaque and I would ask them like did did you ask somebody did you insist on somebody explaining you the score that you got and they'd say well I tried but they told me it was math and I wouldn't understand it and I was always like well what happened next did you punch them you know like I I I was (laughs) like what you know I was like what that wouldn't have worked on me like that would right. have stopped me because I have a math PhD. But what I realized is that it did work. It did work. It was a mechanism th- the, to change the subject. It was almost mm-hmm. like they had uh, the, the power, the authorities within the de- departments of education had a little zapper that would like buzz people and say, don't ask these questions. But it was based on shame. And I was like, that's insane. You know, I, I was thinking to myself, like underlying these terribly crappy models and algorithms, many, many times people don't even know they're being scored. They don't know they're being mm-hmm. um, denied opportunities. But even when they do, like, and they ask, they get zapped with shame, like it was what I call a shame shock. And as I said, like, it didn't work on me, but it did blow me away to, to understand that the underlying power was shame. And I just put it in my back pocket because I was like, that's really weird, you know? But then when a couple of years later, actually, just as the book was coming out that summer, 2016, I was doing my own research on like trying to, trying to like avoid diabetes. My dad <laughs> Was very sick with diabetes. He since died of diabetes. My brother had just got diagnosed. I was almost the age my father had been when he got diagnosed, and I was like, "How do I? How do I avoid this?" I had all the risk factors, you know, including obesity. And then I read an article that said like bariatric surgery cures diabetes, even when it doesn't make you lose weight. I mean, it's putatively a weight loss surgery, but it's right. like it's really, I think, should be called a diabetes surgery. Um, And so I started researching it and Laura, like I just couldn't get past the shame that was just in every corner of my research. Like all the ads, you know, all the, you know, Google search results, they would just, and what happened was I wanted to die. I was like, I wanted to like, and I thought of myself honestly, as like someone who had gotten past shame, body shame. I really did like I certainly knew that I had been very subject to it as a child and as a young woman, but like I'd gotten married, I'd had three children, I had a career, you know, I felt like, like this can't touch me. It touched me. It was like zapping my brain every time I tried to work, every time I tried to do science research. It prevented me from thinking clearly. It made me want to pay someone to get that feeling to go away. And I was like, oh, wait, I recognize this, this is shame and it's being used to distract me and to like, have me stop thinking. And it's just like those teachers, except it's happening to me this time. And so those two events where I identified shame as at the bottom of it, like the power that was happening and it was manipulating, not just have happening, but manipulating me to a specific purpose, which in my case was paying for, other things, quick fixes that would definitely not work for diabetes. In the ca- case of the teachers, um, getting them to stop asking questions about their own rights, I was like, this is fundamentally more powerful than a lot of things that we think of as straight power. And it's like almost in, it's nearly invisible. In fact, because I I had to really rack my brain to understand what was happening to myself. Anyway, long story short, that's what the that's how it got me. I was like, and these are such different things, you know. Such different moments in my life, but fundamentally they're both shame, and I want to understand it. And I'll say one more thing. I'm sorry the answer to my question is so long, but the, no, this the is one important. more thing is, I had been an activist already, you know, in in uh, occupy. Yeah, I, I had worked as an activist in Occupy Wall Street, and I recognized that I use shame, that like we use shame in this movement. Like that's what Mm -hmm. civil rights movements do. They use shame. So I was like, wait, it's not always evil. It's sometimes (laughs) actually the only tool you have. Um, So I, I set out at that moment, 2016, like five, six years ago to really just like, what, when is it, when is it appropriate? When is it bullying? Mm -hmm. When does it work? And when does it backfire? Because that's the final observation I made, which was like, shame sometimes just not only doesn't work, but it actually you know, makes things worse. Right. So, um, yeah, so that's, that's how it started.
0: It's amazing to hear that story. Cause when I first think of shame, mm-hmm. I think about it as the deep, dark thing inside of me mm-hmm. about my most personal failings, yeah. at least in my own perception and what you're describing taps into that, but what mm-hmm. it's, but what it's importantly about is shame that's thrown at somebody to take away their power.
1: Yes, well listen, I mean I I should probably back up and define shame. <laughs> shame as one experiences it is the actually disintegration of the notion of self. It is like the feeling that you are worthless, the feeling of unworthiness that you do not you're not lovable and your sense of self actually gets compromised threatened and even disintegrated at that moment of, of true shame like when tr- shame washes over us that means we're like who am i do you know do i deserve love and it's like the worst feelings it's the psychically it is tantamount to being punched you know in mm-hmm. your in your guts but in some sense it's worse than a physical uh blow because it is it's fundamental to your own sense of self, and it can last way longer um, than than it would to take to recover from a blow. So it's it's really threatening to us. So you're right about that.
0: Yeah, when I think about. Um, what haunts me in the middle of the night. It may be something from 15 years ago that I may Mm -hmm. be ashamed of. Um, Those things do take root. And I think when you're talking about things like whether it's disempowering teachers or in your case, trying to learn how to advance your own health in a culture that positions, as you said, something that should be used as a diabetes treatment as a weight loss treatment. Yeah. It's also, there's something systemic about this which is also an important part of what you get to in the book, that there's, a, that there's both our own relationship with it, a societal relationship, but also a kind of economic engine. That, is it that the engine propels it or it's propelled by it?
1: Well, I would say that there's a lot of industries that have traditionally fed off of their ability to shame us very successfully. Um, and they probably exist in large part because they're so good at it. They're so good at manipulating us, whether it's like making us feel old and ugly and saggy. <laughs> so we buy skin cream, which is like a very old, old industry, right? Mm-hmm. Or the weight loss industry. Or um, I'd say I would argue that like the pharmacist, like the opioid epidemic was uh, also profit-driven and also is deeply shaming. Uh, the Sackler family famously emailed each other to that we should blame the addicts for their problem, not us, you know, to try to deflect the blame. And it was a huge profitable engine. So there's this sort of um, long history and tradition of sort of blaming the victims and then making money off of that. And I would argue that shame machines don't have to Sell us a product that, by the way, inevitably fails. Like we don't (laughs) actually get younger when we put those skin creams on. Diets don't actually work. But that's in some sense part of the business model, you know. Like, right? If if it worked and we were done and we lost weight and never needed to another product, then that would they would lose business. I mean, Weight Watchers and others are just fundamentally requiring that their their products fail. Um, But it doesn't have to be pure profit. Like another example I give is how we shame poor people. I mean, and that's not always in order to make money from poor people. We're not selling them of useless product, although we do sell them useless products, don't get me wrong. There's a lot of scamming of poor people. Um, I would say the nonprofit colleges is an example of that. <clears throat> but it's not only about profit, it's often about shifting the blame. So this is a kind of like distraction mechanism that I talked about with the teachers. like. If you blame poor people for being poor, then it's their fault and not society's fault. And therefore society doesn't have to deal with the problem.
0: So we can abdicate responsibility by pushing it on somebody else. And I think the same
1: argument goes for addiction writ large. I mean, we blame addicts for their addiction. That's one of the reasons we have rehab clinics that are shame-based and don't even follow the most um, medically sound advice. They just simply say, you know, no, you can't have methadone because that's just replacing one addiction for another, which is simply not like what doctors say, you know, it's just not right. Um, But it is, it is punitive. And there's, so there's some part of our I would say our public psyche that wants to wants to be punitive because we want to separate ourselves from those big problems because we don't want to solve those big problems.
0: Right. They're hard. So Kathy, I want to take a step back for a second and help um, understand the dynamic of shame a little bit more when it comes to when does it give us power to shame others? And when does it steal our power? Like there seems to be a dynamic about how we all engage with it in two different directions. Yeah, And that um, it feels like while these these economic engines, the data economy, advertising, are new, in the course of humankind, relatively new industries. Shame's been a part of human culture for a long time.
1: Of course, and not only that, but I would argue, like has been a really, essential part of human culture, right? Shame and the, you know, shame is the reason we can cohere as communities. Shame is, I I want you to think of shame as, as at least sort of at the highest level, evolutionarily speaking, what forces us to consider the needs of the community over our own personal needs. So Mm -hmm. we would be shamed for hoarding food in a famine, and that's because the community needs to share at those moments. And if we weren't following the rules, we'd be shamed. And to be clear, the reason it's such a threat to us is that if we get kicked out of the village in a famine, we're gonna die, you know? Like it is actually quite a threat to be shamed to be, and to be shunned and to be ostracized. It's, it is a fundamental threat to our existence and our health. So it makes sense for us to take it quite seriously. Um, I would argue that that kind of reaction where we're like, oh, my God, I'm threatened here, panic, panic, has been manipulated in the age of, you know, major corporations and for that matter, social media.
0: And so it's um, it's taking this theoretically. Necessary emotional reaction to societal needs or a, a societal dynamic that has been part of culture because it serves a purpose. And it gets um, transformed into as a manipulative device to serve certain individual needs rather than societal needs.
1: Right. I mean, I the shame machine or the shame industrial complex of the first part of my book is about this hijacking of our sort of knee-jerk reactions to being shamed that we like fundamentally are vulnerable to these attacks and we we seed our normal rational thoughts i mean assuming we're normally rational i i don't i hesitate though to make it sound like we like there is no use of for sh- like there's no good use for shame because there is even now even in modern day but it doesn't look like blaming someone for being fat and making them buy a useless product, right? So one of the things (laughs) that I, one of the things I really wanted to get at in, in my understanding of shame is a kind of taxonomy of shame, if you will, of like, when is it appropriate? And when is it bullying? When is it punching Mm -hmm. up? I call it or punching down. Um, And I came up with this and by the way, that's a separate question from another important question is when does it work, right? right. But, but let's start with when is it appropriate? Um, I have these notions of voice and choice. So first of all, when you shame someone, and by the way, you always shame somebody with respect to some norm, some rule that mm-hmm. they're theoretically not supposed to follow, but they're not following. Um, they have to have the choice to follow it, right? They, you can't shame them because they're short. Like nobody chooses to be short. Likewise, people don't choose to be you know, fat or poor or addicted. Um, so that's the first thing. Is it's automatically bullying if you're you're blaming somebody on something that they don't have a choice of. Of course, what I've done there is I've shifted um, this to the notion of like how much choice do you have in being fat? And my argument is very little. <laughs> right. <laughs> people people who successfully dieted and lost five pounds think that you know that if they did that ten times they would lose fifty pounds successfully. It's just not like that. So. Um, there is some amount of choice but there's much less choice than we would have it have one believe um because in part because we want to make money you know like we want it to be true that it's possible to lose 200 pounds and it's just not normally true so there's the notion of choice and then there's the notion the second notion is what i call voice so like um it's it i would say it's it's still bullying to shame somebody you don't know and will never know on social media or, or elsewhere, or somebody who will never have the chance to defend themselves or somebody who will never be seen to, to improve their behavior. Also very likely what would be the case on social media. Like to be appropriately shaming someone is to say, you're not behaving the way you know the rules say, and you could be, you have a choice to do it but you're choosing not to and we want you to do it we want you to behave better and we're going to we're going to stick around until we see you doing better and we hope you do better you know what i mean like it's like mm-hmm. that it, it's a i would argue when you want to shame somebody appropriately you have to be willing to sort of keep an eye on someone rather than say you messed up you're gone you're just dead like <laughs> right. that's just and, and and so you know as i'm saying this I really do think of it as a relatively strong principle. Of course, there might be exceptions to it. It's not an axiomatic principle, but I I would like to make the case that it's very rarely true that the person that you've never heard on of who made a mistake on social media really deserves the pile on of shaming that we see so often.
0: Yeah, so there's so much in what you just shared, Kathy, Um, but one thread that's in here is to think about the ethics of shaming and then the efficacy of shaming. Yes, if I'm tracking this. And so uh, I just want to reflect back because um, I love having a framework for this as e- even for how I navigate this in my own life, but also for the listeners that that question of where does our shaming help to hold another accountable so that they can focus on where they need to change in a way that's good for society that we can watch And either acknowledge the progress or come back and remind them that progress needs to be made. And that's where it could be efficacious. But that if we're shaming somebody we don't know, can't reach, we're not going to be tracking. That's not only not going to work, it's also not ethical.
1: Yeah, I like the word tracking. I, I'm going to use that, actually, because I, I want to call, I, I call it voice. I want there to be some notion of due process, like they should defend themselves. But really, I think it, it really matters that, like, it, you know, what, what are the chances someone's going to change their behavior if they've already been destroyed and will never be seen to improve? You know, they will never be accepted back into, the, into polite society or what, whatever it is. It's very hard to imagine. Contrast that with somebody who is in power and, um, isn't living up to their campaign promises or something, you know right. what I mean? Like living up to their stated ideals that th- their shame is appropriate because then they can change their ways and be, and be told, yes, okay, now you're behaving the way you, you claimed you would. And in way, that case, we're stakeholders. Cause we're voters. Exactly. No. And that's an important part, like appropriate shame, is often holding power to account. It's not always. And by the way, like, let me give you another scenario for what I consider appropriate shame. It's when you go to a community member and you say you're behaving in a way that's not part, that's not acceptable in our community. Presuming that that person agrees with the norm that you're, that you're appealing to, like they, you know, they might change their ways. It has to be uh, it, and now we're so we're moving from what's appropriate shame to what when does shame work? The number one thing is they have to agree to the norm, right? So right. if you if you go to, to a person who's an anti-masker and say you know the community would appreciate you wearing a mask, that's not going to work. They just don't agree with that norm. Right. Um. But it's not just that the norm has to be agreed upon. It has to be that it there's a community. There's a sense of community of trust. That there's a sense of like. And this is kind of like tracking as well. This is kind of like, you know, we all, we, we trust you. We're, we're, we're neighbors. You know, we are, we all care about this community. That's why it's important uh, to uphold the, the safety rules of, of our community. And then it might work it, but to be clear, that kind of, that kind of shaming looks a little bit more like persuasion. I mean, I would argue <laughs> that like, that's in, interesting. In fact, is,
0: it, is it that it's persuasion or it's a tool in persuasion? It's
1: a so shame is kind of like there, it, but it's only a, a sort of a soft shame, I would call it, because it's a threat. Um, it's a threat. You're saying I'm threatening shame here, but I'm not going to just, I'm not going to pull that out of my back pocket if you just, if we have this conversation well. Um, I think the best example of who can do that well is Zelensky um, from Ukraine, <laughs> right? He's, he's basically appealing to a higher norm, which is democracy western values and he's saying to his um leaders of the western countries hey you guys say you believe in democracy well like prove it pony up (laughs) yeah prove it like help help us defend democracy and that is it's a soft shame because he is saying you know put your money where your mouth is um and And it's working, it's working very well. And he's doing it in his very persuasive, like we are part of a community here of Western leaders and we need to stick together and you guys need to do your thing to show us, to show me that you're you're behind the ideals you espouse.
0: It's such a potent example, especially since one of the things you wrote in the book um, that you're talking about now is um, that when there are clearly held values that everyone can agree to, then shame can be a tool in that regard. And as I was reading it, I'm thinking about how broken our own government is, about how polar su- polarized the country is, almost operating with two completely different value systems. So that it's very hard. Shame is thrown across the you know, across the wall at each other, but it's not anchored in shared values. But w- for the first time in a long time, there's something happening external to the U.S. that's bigger than us, and the, that shame can get can work because it's um, tapping into something that's elevating us past our political divide.
1: Yeah, it is actually kind of an amazing example. Um, where it is a bipartisan issue, in some sense, essentially, because it's so universal. Mm -hmm. Um, It's a universal norm. And that, of course, is often when punching up shame works, is when you're like, well, nobody wants children to die in their classroom. So let's have (laughs) gun control. You know what I mean? Um, It's when it's like an irrefutable norm that people share that shame punching up shame works because if it's not if it sort of stays in the everyday world of like political games and the next next election cycle then it you know there's no there's no reason to to really feel shamed it's when like you're talking about you know my friend's kid got shot you know that's when that's Mm -hmm. when it happens
0: how much of what you think is going on is about the concept of democracy and us buying in, or it's, that's a graceful way to say we all have a con- common enemy here. That's not conceptual, but real.
1: Well, I mean, I don't think it's that different to be honest, I, because uh, if you flip it, flip it and you see that Putin is being shunned, right? Mm-hmm. He's being shunned uh, for war crimes. And uh, by the way, I have a story about this, but I'll tell you the story in a second. But like you see Facebook pulling out, you see Facebook um, very quickly after the invasion refusing to run Russian state propaganda ads anymore. You see all these different like BP and Exxon, all all these gas companies refusing to deal with Russia um, and their oil. This is really interesting and strange because it is anti-profit, right? Like, and when's the last time you saw Facebook do something that's not profitable. (laughs) Can't recall. Um, Right. But it is exactly the same reason, which is that um, we do not want to be seen on this side of this fence. Like we want to get on the other side of the fence because that is completely inappropriate behavior. So the same impulse uh, to shun and ostracize Putin and his supporters um, is the impulse to support uh, Zelensky. But Zelensky is making it even more precise by appealing for specific things.
0: So in the first half hour, you helped ground us in a bunch of different concepts around shame, Um, ideas of when it is societally useful, um, kind of integral to how we operate as a society, that um, it also can be at the heart of an economic engine that exploits our ability to feel shame in order to make money. And yeah. that there are a variety of issues in our society where shame is integral to either how we need to deal with it or how we've been dealing with it poorly. And one, and there's a complicated area that I've been eager to ask you about, and that's the process of learning to become anti-racist. Mm-hmm. That in my own efforts to move along that trajectory, you know, one of the messages I got was that I need to learn how to sit with my shame and own it and use that as a tool to move forward. Yet we also see a huge backlash in the country of people saying you will not teach critical race theory in our schools. And I'm wondering if it's because it makes people feel ashamed. So how do we look through the lens of shame to understand how we deal with this?
1: Oh, what a great question. Um, The answer is yes. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, done. but let me let me give you a let me give you a little bit of my uh, thinking about what it means to sit with shame Uh, sitting with shame sounds awful, uh, because I just I just spent, you know, uh, some number of minutes explaining how terrible shame feels so I want to I want to revisit what it means to sit through shame I, I actually have a notion of like, like stages of shame. Which of course I just made up, but I, I do think that they're pretty they're pretty useful as a taxonomy of what happens when you are going through something that uh like like um, racism. So the first thing is you feel ashamed. That's an incredibly uncomfortable feeling, as I said, it, and it, it almost immediately produces what I would describe as cognitive dissonance. Like you want to think you're a good person but you have this sense of unworthiness of, of shame Um, that conflict, that conflict inside you, that cognitive dissonance leads us leads one to sort of get to this place of denial, to be honest, Mm. um, often and either it's denial or it's like ignorance in the sense of like, I'm ignoring this. I'm literally Ah. going to stop thinking about this. And I can testify to that exact feeling as a child being fat. I was ashamed of being fat. I was told it was a choice. I tried to make the better choice, but I didn't know how I would I would be so ashamed. And it's such an actively terrible feeling that I would be like, I can't handle this. So I would go into these months long phases where I was just ignoring the mm-hmm. issue. I would not look in the mirror. I would not buy new clothes, et cetera. Didn't help. And, and by the way, like the moment, <laughs> right. the moment somebody mentioned I was fat again, I went back into the first stage, which is the pain. Okay. Right. So the, these, I would say most people sit in phase one and two, which is like pain and denial pain. And then they just bounce back and forth because you can get triggered back mm-hmm. into pain.
0: And you need the denial to relieve the pain. You
1: need the denial because no one can live in that kind of pain. Right but there's a, n- another option which i call reckoning um, and there's so there's two more stages which i call stage 3 and 4 but like the third stage is like rec- personal reckoning and the fourth stage is like a larger reckoning for for the, on the on behalf of a larger group of people so the reckoning is when you're like oh wait you're coming to terms with it like if you're ashamed of something you actually did then you're like i did that <laughs> i actually did that um, I was wrong, you know, it's, but I, I'm not that person anymore. I'm going to, I'm going to apologize. Um, I'm real, and I I'm really going to mean it. I'm not going to say, I'm sorry, you felt bad. I'm going to say, I'm sorry. I did that. Right. It's, it's actually kind of almost ridiculous how easy it is to tell if somebody has gone through that reckoning phase when they apologize, because if they, if they've really gone through the reckoning phase, it's obvious they are actually like, actually sorry for what they've done. Um, most people don't have the courage to do that. Um, whether it's it's something that they actually did or something that they didn't actually do like being mm-hmm. fat. Um, and then finally, you know, stage four, whether if it's fatness, it's like, wait a second, like diets don't work for me. That would be the reckoning, personal reckoning, but like the diet industry is just manipulating us and taking advantage of a problem that nobody knows how to solve. Literally nobody understands why obesity is happening. And yet we are gonna get getting blamed and you know charge money for this. And so that's sort of the reckoning at the highest level. Now, I just wanna caveat once more, and then I'll go back to your actual question that it is possible to go from stage four back to stage one in the mm-hmm. flip of a switch. People can trigger you into just feeling ashamed of yourself. and That happens to me all the time. So I don't want to claim that I have a, how to solve your shame book. I have not solved shame. It is not a self-help book, but it, <laughs> if you ever do
0: write it, let me know. Okay. I think it's a
1: hard one. I think someone saying that they wrote that is lying. Um, <laughs> right. I don't think shame is something you can, recover from entirely. It is something you can grapple with. Mm-hmm. Now, when it comes to racism, similarly, I think we as a as a country, as white people in this country, uh, it is the original sin besides the genocide of Native Americans. We are proud of our nation and our historical roots, which you know, for, for pretty good reasons. Often that means we can also be ashamed of things in our past, you know, like anybody who says, Oh, it wasn't me who did that. Well, it wasn't you who did the good things either, but you seem to learn how to be Uh, proud of people. Okay.
0: Wait a second. This is important and big. And, um, at least in, in what I've taken in, nobody's put it quite that way. I think there's something really important and exquisite about the way that you're expressing this. When do we get to take pride in the past and, yes, as compared to abdicating any responsibility for
1: exactly it? My, that's exactly my point. If we get to be proud of our ancestors, which we do, we also get to be ashamed of our ancestors. And I would say that as a nation, we are pretty stuck in stage two mm-hmm. of, of shame. We are pretty stuck in, like, I'm a good person, this can't be happening, I must. I must not have done anything wrong. I'm going to ignore this. And when we are asked to be anti-racist, we're asked to reckon with ourselves and our history and the people around us. And we're asked to go to stage four. That's for me what s- sitting in shame means, sitting in white shame, mm-hmm. is to just say yes, it racism is a fundamental uh, fact about our history and about our present, and it's a problem and it's bad and I'm ashamed of it and we need to grapple with it and we need to address it. It's not actually, it doesn't mean I sit around feeling bad about myself every day. I don't feel ashamed of myself every day as a racist, even though I acknowledge I am a racist because everyone's a racist. It is a fundamental fact about being a person in this country. Um, It means for me, it means doing the work of anti-racism and realizing how important that, that work is. So to your question, the, the recent legislation on like, no, you can't, you can't make it actually I think some of the legislation literally says, you can't make students feel bad. It is literally saying don't reckon, don't reckon with the, the original sins of our country. And that's crazy. It is actually saying don't progress in a natural way to reckoning with white shame because I mean, that's what we need to do. Clearly,
0: right, and also in there is this message of don't challenge us to think about things that are hard and complicated. Yes,
1: and I think it's fundamentally it's embarrassing that we are not being we're not trusted to grapple with hard things. So we're not trusting ourselves or our children to grapple with hard conversations, and the reason, of course, is that. The adults don't wanna grapple with these hard conversations and and I'm I'm embarrassed on their behalf. Um, I do trust us to have these conversations because we already are having these conversations. So it's already a done deal. Like this is a ridiculous uh, form of protest um, on behalf of Southern um, politicians.
0: So when you're talking about those different stages that we work through, that's presuming we're making productive progress in processing our shame and figuring out how to be better people individually and collectively. Um, But there's something that happens like when you go to that denial and ignore it stage. And I'd love it if you could help me connect the dots to another place. And this is tied into anti-bias training. Um, In fact. in People Analytics, we had done a bias intervention study with an anonymous global professional services firm. And one of the things that we had to be really careful of as we were designing our study was recognizing how quickly bias interventions can produce a backlash and have exactly the opposite effect than the one that you're trying to create. Right. Talk to me about the role of shame in that backlash and- how we can navigate a way to help others own and own their past behavior, change without actually magnifying the opposite reaction.
1: It's a really good question. I mean, you're, you're. I think what you're talking about is defensiveness that is in, inherent in conversations around white shame. Um, also known as white fragility that Mm -hmm. like that people who are defensive about um racism want to talk about the pain they're experiencing having to talk about their racism
0: Mm -hmm. um
1: and that is part and parcel of what i mean by the cognitive dissonance um the cognitive dissonance in stage two is just like i i'm a good person i can't be a bad person i can't be a bad person at all in any in any way shape or form including um you know my ancestors. And it's just, it's, it's black and white thinking. Um, I don't know. The sad fact is, I don't know how to uh, overcome that, um, in a in a workshop setting. Uh, I will say that I do think that um, shame works best because that's one of the things I think about when there is a sense of community and there's a sense of trust and people feel Um, like they're not going to be ostracized or shunned. They don't feel that threat that they're going to Mm -hmm. actually die of exposure when they've been kicked out of the village. And I do think that a lot of the defensiveness comes from that feeling of being threatened. Um, So it might, you know, it might depend on setting that tone. Mm -hmm. Um, But on the other hand, there's only so much patience. I would be able to have, if I'm trying to talk about white shame and everyone's like, not me, not my ancestors, I'm good. (laughs) I'd be like, okay, whatever. Um, Do you know what I mean? So it's like, there is a lot of work to be done. um, And we're seeing that very clearly. I will also though say that um, one of the things I really tried to do in my book is focus not on individuals intentions, Mm -hmm. but on systemic design.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: so i would argue that like you know when and that's one of the reasons i and i wrote a book about algorithms you know like algorithms are you know they're they've become infrastructure in mm-hmm. who does who deserves to loan who deserves a job who deserves to get into college you know who deserves a raise um, they become the pipes of the system and so knowing how those pipes you know discriminate against people of color or women or whatever protected class you're talking about um, is essentially more important than what any individual thinks. So I I do want to focus on the system System. designs Mm -hmm. rather than um, like what fragility uh, at at the individual level. Not that that's not a problem. It is an obvious problem. But at the same time, I'm like, can we just ignore such people who cannot handle progress and make sure that the actual pipe, the infrastructures are
0: working. Right, because then that will t- will carry the rest of it out. So I want to talk about another system that's deeply entrenched in our society um, and can is also part of where we see other divides in our culture. And we had done a show this was a couple of years ago on a woman who wrote a book called Pure, really interesting about her experience in the evangelical Christian community. I've read that book. I thought what did you think of it? I really enjoyed it. Yeah, I thought it was profoundly important and one of the things that she brought up in it was the role of shaming women yes. for men's behavior.
1: I you know, I read that book in part to for my research for my shame book. I ended up not using it in the sense for the following reason that I just don't have enough religious background to really, I, I think, speak on it. Mm-hmm. But she did such a wonderful job talking about that, that it's like deflected shame on not just, w- you know, from men to women, but from all men to young girls. Yes. Like the young girls are supposed to single handedly be responsible for all men's behavior, and it, it is so outrageous and and totally inappropriate.
0: Yes, and at the same time, it seems like a mechanism in sustaining the status quo of yes. how a particular society functions.
1: Exactly. Right, and so that's that's the, the social, and it's the oldest social mechanism of shame. Right, it's the <laughs> oldest use. Um, it is the oldest perverse use of shame. It is not actually helping communities. It is blaming the weakest, most vulnerable uh, members of the community for the sins of the strongest, most powerful members of the community. So it's perverted, but it is essentially how shame works, which is like as a social cohesion rule system. It mm-hmm. is not uh, it's not explicitly profiting through consumer products. It is just holding on to power for the sake of power and so you'll see that uh similarly with the church abuse um like the victims were shamed mm-hmm. for being abused um rather than allowing um the abusers to be held to account
0: so when i want to l- seize onto this notion of talking about power again because as i was reading the book there was another a book called power for all by tiziana Casciaro and julie Battilana who talked about the difference of when um, power from the ground up versus power from the top down. And it correlated um, in many ways from you. So was reading with how you talk about punching up and punching down, which you mentioned earlier. Mm-hmm. So I'm wondering if you could talk again about what's that difference between punching up and down as it relates to who has power and then where punching up can actually be done effectively in the context of shame.
1: Yeah, so punching up and punching down is is related to the notion of both appropriateness and power, right? So punching down is when you're punching inappropriately, which would be bullying, mm-hmm. um, and it's typically done by people in power onto less powerful people. Um, that is es- essentially this the standard approach. Punching up is the opposite, where it's appropriate and it's holding people to account on things that they have a choice about and that they can be seen to improve. Um, so that is those are two totally different uses of shame. One, <laughs> one thing you'll see by the way, is that punching up never makes money. So I talk about the profit centers <laughs> right. um, and the status quo holders like you know punching down like we, we were just discussing in, in the evangelical church and like in the Catholic Church, it, it's a, you know it's associated to old school structures of power. Um, it mean if it doesn't make money directly, it maintains the status quo. It maintains power. Um, it doesn't let anybody complain. It silences victims of shame mm-hmm. versus um, I think silencing is a is a good way of characterizing punching down.
0: Yeah,
1: um, because silencing is something that happens to people with less power and then holding people to account never it never makes money it's changing the status quo it's related to shifting norms i'm you know and or related to like look you say that you believe in women's rights but you still allow these um these predators uh in the workplace to like to sexually assault their their secretaries you know that's like the me too movement um so it's it's explicitly um trying to hold people to the norms that they claim that they have, and it, the example one of the examples I gave in the book was with you know Gandhi's salt mar- march. You also think through like example like South, South African apartheid boycott movement. You know it's like hey this is inappropriate, and um, you say you're better than this, so li- live up to the ideals that you claim.
0: So um, we've seen it. Um, one of the examples where I think that both. Um, Tiziana used in her book, but that you also noted was Greta Thunberg and the climate change activism um, that um, really struck me. And I'd love if we could um, tease that apart a little bit, because Mm -hmm. I think there are instructive examples in there, particularly in the context of punching up or giving power for all that um, there was something. Well, social media, as you talk about in great detail in the book, um, gets weaponized through the algorithms that tap into like our behavior of shaming others gets picked up amplified. But in this case, what she was doing was using social media to spread a message to shame those of us who have caused climate change. It was kids reaching out to their parents to say, Hey, protect the world that we're going to grow up in. Right.
1: And, and, and what was so moving about Retta was well, first of all, she's clearly not making money from this. This is right. uh, through true belief. She's, she's not a paid activist, um, even though she was accused of that by many. Um, she was trying to appeal and I think was successful in many cases of, to appeal to um, sort of the parents of the world to think about their future children's um, environment um, because of her age in part she had no ulterior motives. She did not have a profit motive. She had a true focus, like a laser beam focus on this one thing. And she was saying, you guys, you know, you're in power. You have power. I don't have power. You can make this choice. You have the choice to do this. You're choosing not to do this. Shame on you. And she was just so articulate about that choice. And so evidently uncompromised, Mm-hmm. And uncompromising, that it was impossible to ignore her, um, and she was very, very, and she is still very, very good at that. Um, of course, the real question is when does when does one person's voice, a- as clear as it is, get heard? Mm-hmm. You know, in the noise of the Ukraine invasion by Russia. You know, we're not talking about Greta Thunberg right now, right? Um, so it's 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 never completely obvious what it when punching up succeeds, um, beyond having a bunch of requirements. And she she fit, she fit all the requirements. She checked off all the uh, the whole checklist. But then we also need there to be a moment when we can actually focus on doing those things that she was
0: asking us to do. So it's um, not just the conditions that need to be in place for that initial effort to punch up, to get traction. But then like we were talking about earlier, tracking it, holding others accountable over time is gonna be critical if the shame is going to produce the positive social results that we're looking for.
1: Yeah, and for that reason, punching up not only is not profitable, but often takes a long time. It takes much more time than is reasonable often
0: but still worth it. Kathy, we are unfortunately running out of time. I could talk to you all day. Um, I could talk to you, Laura. It's
1: really great so, conversation.
0: Thank you. And thank you for the work that you're doing on this. If people want to learn more about you, the book, your other work, consulting, where can they find you?
1: Um, well, my consulting company is orcarisk.com and the Orca is O-R-C-A-A because it's algorithmic auditing. Um, I'm also to be found at uh, mathbabe.org, which is my old school blog. And of course, um, I sometimes write at Bloomberg Opinion if you want to see my ongoing opinions about various things.
0: Kathy, thank you again for joining us. This really was a treat. My pleasure. Thank you. And thank you everyone for listening today. I'm really glad you were able to join us. And if you have a question about anything you heard on today's show, email us at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. You can also follow us on our Twitter on Twitter at our handle at SXM Business. And you can download our podcast with our whole back catalog wherever you get yours. Just search on Women at Work, and that's with the and symbol and Laura arrow and find me on LinkedIn if you want to communicate directly. Many thanks as always to my beloved producer Patty Hall, our fantastic sound engineer Chris Tukes, Kara Pogue for all her support behind the scenes. I'm Laura Zarrow, and you've been listening to Women at Work here on Sirius XM's business radio channel 132, powered by the Wharton School. Have a great week, everybody, and if you need to. Punch up. It's worth it. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit
1: businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.